Hello, and welcome back to the Past and Present Podcast. This is Kim Groves, hoping you've been having a wonderful week. I also hope that you got something out of our discussion on um, adultery and how it meshes with our previous Monday discussion on murder. Um, So I, I think that learning the fact that thoughts and can equal deeds or can can lead us into destructive actions is is basically is something that we we all need to know and learn and understand how Jesus views thoughts and and actions. Now, uh, for today's talk on archaeology, uh, I decided to pull my source material from a different space than I normally do. Normally, I pull my information from. BAS Library, Biblical Archaeology um, Society. And, but today, because I'm actually kind of diverging a bit from our normal path on uh, Biblical Archaeology, I pulled my source material from Archaeology Magazine. Um, so our article today is entitled The Rulers of Foreign Lands by Andrew Curry, and it appeared in the September-October 2018 issue of Archaeology Magazine, and I have been a subscriber to archaeology for many, many years, um, having been a history teacher and just having a general interest in in archaeology. I also enjoy attending the archaeology lectures, and what's nice is that since I live in Maryland, most of the archaeology lectures are in Baltimore or in D.C., and I don't normally get to go, but with COVID um, being around, they've been doing all of their lecture series uh, as Zoom meetings, which is really, really cool, and I've had a chance to actually engage more with the lecture um, series uh, because of that, because uh, Washington, Baltimore, Washington area is like two and a half, three hours from from where I live, and and that's just a a haul to make uh, a six-hour trip for a a 45-minute lecture. So, um, Basically, what we need to understand, without getting into a really deep dive into Egyptian archaeology and Egyptian, uh, ancient Egyptian history, is that Egypt carefully records the names of every pharaoh it's ever had. And uh, they, they've done this for more than 3,000 years. Now, obviously, Egypt is not ruled by pharaohs at this point. They have a president. They have a prime minister. Um, except... During a period from about 1640 BCE, when a new group came to dominate the kingdom um, of Egypt, throwing the region into basically turmoil, and it basically ushered a new era of Egyptian history into um, into being. Um, Manetho, who was a priest and the author of a history of Egypt called Egyptiatica, that was written in about the third century BCE, um, writes, quote, for I know, for, for what cause I know not, a blast of the gods smote us and unexpectedly from the regions of the east, invaders of obscure race marched in confidence of victory against our land. And this is what uh, um, Manetho wrote uh, in Egyptic, Egyptic Arca. Excuse me. Um, this is, uh, he's describing this about 1,500 years after the events actually happened. 
And they are survived because they're quoted by uh, Josephus's um, against Ap Appion. Um, so basically, who is um, Manetho uh, talking about? And uh, he says, by main force, they easily overpowered the rulers of the land. Then they burnt, then burned our cities ruthlessly, razed to the ground the temples of gods, and treated all the natives with a cruel hostility, massacring some and leading into slavery the wives and children of others, and appointing as king one of their number. So these invaders of an obscure race, for centuries, scholars took for granted Manetho's account of invasion and disruption, as reproduced by Josephus. The tale was supported by other historical accounts uh, from the tables of dynasties, rulers, and reigns found in Egyptian temples to papyrus lists of Egyptian, Egypt's dynasties. Now, Egyptologists would treat this period as a ripple in an otherwise unbroken stream that soon smoothed and vanished. Uh, and so it was a very curious little footnote in a 3,000-year-long sweep of Egyptian history. However, archaeological evidence has shifted the way that Egyptologists, which are people who specialize in ancient Egypt, view these invaders, who are called the Hyksos, and their influence at a pivotal moment. So basically, the Hyksos came to power after a very chaotic time after the collapse of the Middle Kingdom and before the blossoming of the New Kingdom. So you have the Old Kingdom is first, the Middle Kingdom, and then the New Kingdom. But there's like a about a, a 100, 150 year period of history between the end of what we Egyptologists call the, the Middle Kingdom and the beginning of the New Kingdom, there's this like 100, 150 year period of history um, where, um, actually I'm sorry, it's a 500 year period of history, um, where we have the reigns of pharaohs like Akhenaten and Tutankhamun. Um, and new discoveries suggest that these developments may have been partially a result of the invasion of the Hyksos. So um, it's not, now we don't believe it's a, a actual brief intrusion. The Hyksos may instead have been a force for change that pushed Egyptian civilization into a new era. So they were like a catalyst for making what ended up being long-term changes that actually to some extent may have preserved uh, Egypt beyond what it normally would have survived um, because of the way that they structured themselves. Now the word Hyksos actually means rulers of foreign lands and it came from the manner on which the short-lived dynasty of Hyksos kings referred to itself. So these origins were unknown, and archaeologists have had little to go on apart from sca scattered historical mentions. The Hyksos rulers apparently wrote nothing. Now, Egyptian histories do refer to a Hyksos capital called Avaris, and Egypt Egyptologists, tantalized by the possibility of learning what foreign lands these storied invaders hail from, began looking for this, this, this city in about the 1880s. None of the sites they first identified as possibilities, including Tanis, um, which is in the uh, Nile Delta, and Pelusium, which is in, also in the Delta, were a match. Some were, were actually aged too late to line up with the Hyksos period, period. Others were actually too small to be a capital of a dynasty that ruled all of Egypt. However, in the 1940s, an Egyptian archaeologist by the name of Labib Habachi began digging on a mound in the Nile Delta about 40 miles 
northeast of Cairo called Tel Adaba. Based on his initial finds, Hibachi argues the site was a potential match for Avaris. Um, later, Tel Adaba proved to be of interest to a young Austrian archaeologist named Manfred Bittak, who started excavating there in 1966. Year after year, he returns to the site, uncovering more and more evidence of a major Egyptian metropolis that had far-ranging connections to the rest of the eastern Mediterranean. He found pottery and weaponry from the Levant and Cyprus, statues and seals to those in from what is now Syria, and he spent nearly 50 years digging at Tel Adaba until about 2011 when there were security issues related to the Arab Spring movement that kind of swept through that whole region. And it forced the Austrian Archaeological Institute to halt its excavations. So he, he works today as a professor at the University of Vienna and a researcher at the Austrian Academy. He works uh, to sort through the decades of data from Tel Adaba. And uh, he has an advanced research grant called the Enigma of the Hyksos. So he's, he's very interested in this actual little period in Egyptian history. Um, there are also researchers that are looking at the impact of the Hyksos on later Egyptian culture, their identity as immigrants, how they came to power, and reasons for their downfall. And there's another group that heads by a bioarchaeologist uh, based at the University of Bournemouth in the UK, and he has plans to begin analyzing human remains from around that region in hopes to create a data set that will show where the people of Avaris came from and whether they migrated during their lifetime. So in other words... You know, DNA is, is a beautiful thing, and we have ways of extracting DNA from, um, from bodies that are long dead. And the Egyptians that are very well known for their uh, corpse preservation methods, uh, obviously they are able to get probably some decent amounts of DNA, and then with the rise of things like Ancestry.com and 23andMe and, and all of these... Uh, DNA repositories probably able to link people of today to this the, these groups, this group of people. So we might be able to say, oh, well, you know, hey, this person over here has a little bit of this DNA that we found in these Hyksos bodies. So, you know, maybe they're from this generalized region. But all we know is that they came from the east. And given the fact when we discussed Jericho and its destruction, the Hyksos do come up in that conversation. So it bears the idea that perhaps these were Semitic invasions, or invaders, I'm sorry. So now Dr. Betak actually thinks the Hyksos rule was more a homegrown phenomenon, which is less of an, uh, an rather than an, a foreign imperialism. So it's a tale of movement for economic and political reasons that, you know, kind of would ring true today. Immigrants from the Levant, not invaders, briefly elevated fellow immigrants um, to rule over all of Egypt. Uh, the history actually, because victors tend to write the history, history say they moved into Egypt by force and were very cruel. But it wasn't really an invasion. After excavations, there's doubt that it was, uh, they have no doubt that it was actually a gradual infiltration. Furthermore, Dr. Betak believes this was done, at least at first, with the cooperation of the pharaohs. So, um, evidence from Avaris actually 
is contrary to what Manetho actually uh, accounted, recounted. Um, and uh, there's actually evidence to suggest they brought important innovations to the kingdom on the Nile, from a horse and chariot to new gods and an openness to the world. The Hyksos period is a groundbreaking period in Egyptian history. It's the first time that there's foreign people with foreign habits ruling Egypt. Um, now, to really kind of get into the Hyksos phenomenon, you have to have a kind of a long view of Egyptian history. Um, 600 years before the Hyksos took power, around 2200 BCE, the world was gripped by what we call a little ice age. And we have these little ice ages and little warming trends that so they don't seem little because we're living in that moment. But in, in the, the vast history of the cosmic age of the planet, they're, they're you know, lasting just a few hundred years. Um, in Egypt, the two centuries after this little ice age were marked by persistent drought. The dry spell may have led to a political instability that resulted in a fragmentation of the old kingdom. So, but Egypt... This kind of stuff doesn't exist in a vacuum. So Egypt wasn't the only one affected by these climatic changes. Um, drought hit the desert regions to Egypt's north and west, causing famines that may have spurred migrants from the Levant and the Libyan desert to pick up and head for the relative stability of the Nilotic floods. Because the, the, the Nile flooded and receded with amazing regularity. And it's the reason why we have such an amazing... Uh, you know, they, they can have an amazing agricultural society in the middle of the desert is because uh, they've actually at this point now managed to control the flooding um, by the Anwar High Dam. Um, so the, the, these Nilotic floods led to a period of intensive immigration and the pharaohs actually tried to control this with planned settlements and fortresses. Newcomers also brought their own language, which was likely a Western Semitic tongue related to Canaanite. Um, they employed, the 12th dynasty employed mercenaries from Western Asia, um, and they moved into Egypt and offered their services to the local ruler in exchange for something to eat. Okay. Now, Avaris, which is between the Nile's northernmost tributaries, provided year-round access to the Med, the Mediterranean, and was perfectly placed to attract these new immigrants. Because what happens is when in the delta, when the Nile floods and then recedes, it creates these little islands, for lack of a better word, in the silt. And this silt is incredibly rich and fertile because you're dredging, it's flooding up and bringing all that wonderful, dead, detritus and plant life that's roasted at the bottom and, and decayed up. And it creates a very fertile environment to, to produce crops, things like papyrus and cotton. Um, and other crops, corn, anything else. So this, this silt is very, very rich. And living in the Delta, you get this, this silt. And these islands will kind of rise up at the mouth. We have them in the mouth of the Mississippi. And, and other major islands, or I'm sorry, other major rivers have at the mouth usually a delta of some kind. Um, so... Um, the port city attracted shipbuilders, sailors, and other immigrants, and it was a, mainly a population hub of, hub of people from the Levant. It blossomed with the blessing of the pharaohs during the late 12th dynasty, and during the 12th, the, I'm sorry, the 13th dynasty, it became more and more independent. 
So, Egyptian reliefs from this period depict these new arrivals as an exotic presence. They have mushroom-shaped hairstyles and wheeled slings and distinctive duckbill-shaped battle axes. Evidence from BTAC's excavations suggests that these immigrants played a central role in shaping the city of Avaris, including importing pottery styles, ceremonial architecture, dress codes, and non-Egyptian burial customs and religious practices, such as internment in the walls of buildings, and donkey sacrifices found in tombs and the courtyards. Now, at this time, Egypt was on a, a major expansive um, expansion drive. It was extending its reach to the rest of the eastern Mediterranean, and Avaris's year-round harbor played a key role. So you have these, basically, these immigrants are in charge of um, the, the uh, expansion of, of uh, Egypt. So, serving as the first port of call for imported trade goods, uh, Avaris became a boomtown. Um, cemeteries from the 12th and 13th dynasties are filled with gold, statuary, and other valuable grave goods, which is a sign, obviously, of increasing wealth. Archaeologists have found evidence of Egyptian influence in other cities around the Near East, perhaps left by trading colonies, embassies, or even political refugees. Now, the religious landscape of Avaris also provides strong indications of foreign influence. Temples dedicated to storm gods from present-day Syria, displaying a distinctive architecture that has little in common with typical Egyptian places of worship, were constructed in Avaris. For BTAC, it is clear that the people running the show were from overseas. The elite decide what kind of temples were constructed. So this shows us where the elite in Avaris come from. And this type of temple comes from far, far away. Now, meantime, the city's population established it as a rival to the traditional Egyptian power centers like Thebes. And Avaris began attracting people from elsewhere in Egypt. So it became kind of like an international city, I guess you could say. Um, and so the stage was now set for the Hyksos to rise. So we really don't know what happened next in Avaris, but there was a mass grave at the site uh, where BTAC's team have, has excavated suggested an epidemic swept through the city, perhaps like the bubonic plague. Um, it carried, uh, that may have been carried aboard one of the many ships. So um, later Egyptian writers called the bubonic plague the Asiatic disease, that the a clue that the epidemic may have been introduced by arrivals from the Levant. BTAC's excavations also show the local palace burned to the ground toward the end of the 14th dynasty, around 640 BCE. And that is when the first Hyksos kings made their appearance in the historical record. So, BTAC is under the impression that a small group of foreigners used Avaris and its sympathetic, culturally similar population as a staging ground for a takeover. Takeover. So this wasn't like a conquest, but rather like an encroachment. Like it starts small and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And this foreign group actually gains a political foothold in the country and then is able to usurp power from the old guard in order, and brings in its own set of values, its own culture, its own set of gods, its, its own way of doing things. And it sort of acts as a shot in the arm to the locals to say, hey, look, we, you have to embrace and adapt 
in order to continue to survive. And right now, the Hyksos are it. They're the ones that are in charge. They are the ones that are taking control, leading the government, bringing in a new way of doing things, and actually preserving the culture. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, basically, um, this group had created a power base for a foreign elite. So from Alvarez, the Hyksos expanded, um, and the dominance stretched to envelop central Egypt. The rise was reflected in Alvarez, too, so the city's footprint nearly tripled in size, and at its height, the city was home to an estimated 25,000 people, which is pretty big, spread out over a square mile of bustling, crowded, stinking cityscape. So um, there were no toilets or plumbing found there. So it was actually one of the largest cities in the ancient Near East, not just in Egypt. <coughs> the size of a town, like the town is amazing for, for where it was and the time frame. So the Hyksos' adversaries in Thebes weren't con content with being vassals. Uh, the Thebians fought back, freeing themselves and cutting Avaris off from the rest of Egypt. Fighting between Avaris and Thebes plunged Egypt into basically a civil war. According to the contemporary inscriptions and Nubian pottery found in Avaris, the Hyksos seemed to have forged an alliance with the Nubians, who were far to the south in what we now call Sudan, in a vain attempt to crush Thebes from two sides. So you have Thebes, I'm sorry, you have um, Avaris in the north, in the delta, and then you have Thebes sort of in the middle of, of Egypt, and then you underneath of them to the south, you have the Nubians. So basically, it was, they were trying to force, the Hyksos were trying to force Thebes to fight a war on two fronts, and when you come divide, you can conquer. But unfortunately for the Hyksos, this did not pan out the way they thought. <coughs> um, there's even evidence of Hyksos axes in action. So there have been skull injuries found um, that are consistent with a duck-billed axe that were wielded by the Hyksos. Um, now, during one of his last excavation seasons, Betak made a grisly discovery that dates to this violent movement. In a series of pits done, dug near the forecourt, forecourt of a Hyksos-era palace, um, Betak found 16 severed right hands, and he suggests that these hands were trophies taken by Hyksos soldiers in battle and redeemed later for a cash reward, which is in a tradition their Egyptian opponents may have adopted as well. Severed hands exchanged for so-called gold of valor are a frequent feature on the walls of post-Hyksos Egyptian tombs and victory scenes on temple walls. Now, yeah, it's kind of gross. I mean, you know, but, but at the same time, we have, there are instances throughout history of, of opponents cutting off the captured members, hands, fingers, so forth and so on. Um, and, and so this is, this is not a, this is a very old, uh, old idea. So, um, however, we can actually look at the Hyksos rise to power as the beginning of a long decline for Avaris. So, uh, it's suggested that the city was gradually cut off from the trade networks Egypt offered, and without the gold, ivory, and precious wood from Nubia or Flint from Upper Egypt, which actually Upper Egypt was in the south of Egypt, not the north, because it's based on where the Nile's head was, which was actually in the south, and the Nile is like one of the only rivers in the world that actually flows from south to north. Um... 
so, um, they actually, uh, the people of Avaris had nothing to offer. So eventually the population grew so desperate they looted the elite cemeteries, and the Thebians closed the connection between the Hyksos and Sudan, and there were none of the coveted commodities from Africa that had put Egypt in a strong commercial position. So that, that's explaining why the Hyksos began looting the cemeteries. Now, to Dr. Betak, the archaeological evidence of Avaris' decline provides further proof that the Hyksos were locally based. If they were invaders from the Levant, he reasons, they would have continued to trade with their base back home. So the fact that they weren't trading outside their own little area leads everyone to believe that they were a local phenomenon, for lack of a better word. Instead, they're soon isolated and grew increasingly impoverished. And um, they're, uh, they've analyzed some of the ceramics from this time and says there's a decline in the amount of imported pottery. Local potters began producing knockoffs. So you have Levantine shapes with Cypriot decoration, but local materials and craftsmanships. So even the weaponry used during the Hyksos period was of low quality. After the city could no longer afford tin imported from the Levant, Weapons were made of pure copper rather than bronze, and copper is not as sturdy as bronze is because you're cutting the copper with the tin. So Amosi, the Thebian pharaoh that ruled from about 1550 to 1525, launched a campaign to seize Avaris and crush the Hyksos. Manetho, the same source who had described the Hyksos as invaders, claims Amosi, the first new kingdom pharaoh, marched in Avaris at the head of an army of 480,000, yet failed to take the city. However, finally, Avaris was captured. The Hyksos agreed to leave Egypt willingly. According to reliefs celebrating the pharaoh's victory, the dynasty's end was bloodier. In Amosi's temple at Ab Abydos, for example, there are scenes of battles and severed hands, and excavations show Avaris's central palace was burned yet again. So the defeated city never recovered. Avaris kind of just was conquered and abandoned in the early 18th, by the 18th dynasty. The people were not expelled, but distributed all over the country as slaves and soldiers. Pottery uncovered at Avaris suggested some did stay behind. Now, BTAC can't go without controversy. Um, his analysis... Uh, does have some controversy. He's, his careful dating of the site is based on evidence, including cylinder seals, architectural styles, pottery, and papyrus scraps. But when researchers test grass seeds preserved at the site using radiocarbon dating techniques, the results are off by nearly a century, which is a pretty significant gap given a, the relatively short reign of the Hyksos kings. So BTAC is actually convinced the radiocarbon dates are not correct, whether because of the samples that were used, the influence of geography, the site's chemistry, or atmospheric changes. In historical periods, historical archaeological methods are more reliable tools, he says. So basically, careful archaeology is actually a better dater of, a better indicator of date than uh, radiocarbon dating. And I'm on the side that science is real and and radiocarbon dating is a thing, but it can only get you so close. But it, it, when you're dealing with radiocarbon dating, you've got a radiocarbon date that says one thing, but you've got archaeological evidence, pottery, 
you know, that kind of stuff. That says something completely different. How do you reconcile those things? And BTAC is saying, look, there's this mound of evidence that says this was the site of Avaris. But then you just have radiocarbon dating that says it's not. So what are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the, the, the chemistry of radiocarbon dating? Or are you going to believe this mound of physical evidence? So he's, he's erring on the side of the mound of physical evidence versus this, you know, chemistry. Because that's basically what radiocarbon dating is. It's chemistry. Um, whether because the samples or anything like that, he says it, it, it may not be a reliable tool. Dating does remain an open question and not all Egyptologists share BTAC's confidence. So since the site is pivotal, if we have to redate it, palaces we thought were Hyksos may turn out to be pre-Hyksos. Now there's still a lot of research to, do, to be done because remember, uh, BTAC has been digging here for like 50 years, okay? Uh, and some of the questions may be difficult to answer, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't ask them. Just because they're hard questions doesn't mean they don't need to be asked. They absolutely should be asked. So um, centuries after their rise and fall, the Hyksos are still bitter memory for the Egyptian. Hatshepsut, a woman who ruled as pharaoh from 1473 to 1458 BCE, boasted in inscriptions that she restored <coughs> temples neglected under the Hyksos and reinvigorated disrupted trade routes. Roots. The anti-Hyksos propaganda doesn't begin immediately. It starts under Hatshepsut almost 80 years later. Their names removed from or left off the king lists that feature in many Egyptian temples. And 15 centuries later, historians such as Manetho and Josephus still fixated on this tiny fractional episode in Egyptian history. So the Hyksos actually represent a trauma, a type of trauma for the Egyptians. That's so heartfelt, Egyptians are still writing about this in the 3rd century BCE. So it'd be kind of interesting to understand why. BTAC and his team continue their work. They are discovering evidence that the Hyksos played a pivotal role in linking Egypt to cultural phenomenon in the rest of the Mediterranean and in a number of innovations that came to define Egyptian culture in later periods. The Hyksos had a lasting influence on Egyptian culture and ideology. Um, so some of the changes the Hyksos introduced were obvious and dramatic. Horse drawn, horse skeleton ever found in Egypt belongs to a mare buried within a Hyksos era palace in Avaris. In a, a corridor directly behind the throne room, um, the, there's iconography of the horse, deities, and technology related to the horse, like the composite bow and chariot. Things we initially assumed to be Egyptian innovations might actually have been inspired by interactions in the Delta. So other Hyksos influences were subtler than the horses and chariots, but reached deep into Egyptian culture, politics, religion, and economics. The Hyksos seem to have introduced long-distance diplomacy. Excavations have uncovered Akkadian seal impressions and a letter in a southern Mesopotamian script. And the temples and gods imported from the Near East to Egypt in the centuries leading up to the Hyksos period did not disappear when the rulers of foreign lands were toppled. Um, clay seals found at Avaris show the Hyksos introduced gods such as Baal, which is a deity that was common in the Near East. Baal's attributes were combined with the Egyptian god of the desert, Set. So Baal was chosen for his links to trade, kingship, and the sea. And the Hyksos... Uh, there's evidence that the Hyksos looked at him as kind of like a patron deity. <clears throat> it, 
The effort it took to defeat Avaris gave the rest of Egypt a strong push toward a new era of openness and assertiveness. So this is one of those like unintended consequences. Uh, the city's fall um, marked the beginning of the new kingdom, considered the peak of ancient Egyptian prosperity and power. It suggested that the century of fighting between the Hyksos and people from other parts of Egypt created a new military culture. So again, one of those unintended consequences um, that actually led to the golden age and golden era in, in ancient Egypt. So again, this was a catalyst for Egypt to make some, some changes that it needed to do to keep and preserve itself over the long haul. Um, before the Hyksos, Egypt, Egyptian pharaohs had no standing army. Uh, after two or three generations of war, they developed a hierarchy of soldiers and officers and a standing fleet, chariotry, and infantry. So once the Hyksos were defeated, Egypt's rulers began using their newly acquired military might to launch regular and successful invasions of their neighbors. The Hyksos had a huge impact, and indirectly, they laid the foundations for the Egyptian empire. Now, I think that about uh, handles us for today, takes care of us for today. I hope you enjoyed our talk on the Hyksos. And again, I'm only doing this as a one-off so that we know a little bit about them so that if they come up again, we kind of have a, a frame of reference for them. Uh, I would like you to join me on Monday when we will be discussing the effects of divorce from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as always, I enjoy hearing from you. Please email me, as always, at kimg.pastandpresentpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at, at podcast underscore past, and on Facebook at Rebirth Network and Rebirth Encouraged, both with a purple heart between the words. And you can find more great uh, vi uh, video devotionals there from our lead minister. Uh, as always, I do hope that you have a lovely, lovely weekend. It is getting ready to be Memorial Day here in the United States. So I will be honoring those uh, men and women who paid the ultimate sacrifice and uh, gave their lives in the preservation of, of uh, freedom and the American way of life. Uh, please reach out to a veteran, uh, even if you are not one of my American listeners. Please reach out to one of your local military veterans and thank them for the things they do to preserve your security and your safety. Uh, even if you don't celebrate American Memorial Day, um, honoring a veteran is always a, a good thing to do. And I say this as the friend of, a vet of veterans, of several different veterans, and I say this as the granddaughter of a veteran. Um, my grandfather, uh, even though I'm only in my mid-40s, my grandfather, my biological grandfather, fought in World War I. He was quite a bit older than my grandmother when they married, and so uh, he actually was uh, in his, he died in 1945 uh, after uh, a heart attack, but he served valiantly in World War I and with honor and distinction. So um, I encourage you to uh, reach out to veterans and uh, thank them for everything that they've done to preserve your uh, safety and security wherever you may be. Uh, again, this is Kim Groves with the Past and Present Podcast, and I encourage you to stay blessed and unstressed and unbothered by the rest. God bless.